1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies, a podcast channel of New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. In American Shtetl, The Making of Curious Joel, a Hasidic Village in Upstate New York, Published by Princeton University Press in 2022, Nomi Stolzenberg and David Myers tell the story of how a group of pious Yiddish-speaking Jews created a, th- a thriving insular enclave and a powerful local government in upstate New York. While rejecting the norms of mainstream American society, Curious Joel has been stunningly successful in creating a world apart by using the very instruments of secular political, and legal power that it disavows. Nomi Stolzenberg holds the Nathan and Lily Chappelle Chair at the University of Southern California Gold School of Law, and David Myers holds the Sadie and Ludwig Kahn Chair in Jewish History at the University of California, Los Angeles. I'm so glad their new book has brought them to our program. Welcome both of you. Thank you. Great to be with you. So to get started, could you please uh, tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to write this book? Nomi, we'll start with you.
0: Uh, Well, with pleasure. Um, First of all, thank you so much for having us. Um, And I'm happy to talk about my background um, because I think it is, I think both of us very much brought that to this book. So... um, I'm a second generation Jewish American. Uh, Both of my parents were were first generation. All of my grandparents came from Eastern Europe from shtetls, Um, uh, ended up settling in Brooklyn. My parents grew up just a few blocks from one another in Crown Heights. And my grandparents were all part of that generation of Jews who were secularizing, who were casting off uh, the tradition. Um, My paternal grandfather was a Yiddish poet, but he was a modernist Yiddish poet. All of my grandparents were Yiddish speakers. My my paternal grandmother was a seamstress on my mother's side. My grandfather became a school teacher. Uh, My grandmother was a bookkeeper. They were all Yiddish speakers, but they were embracing the modern world. Um, They were embracing secular culture, art, literature. Um, And I myself grew up, my parents, when they married, moved to Cambridge, Massachusetts. My father was a mathematician. My mother did many things. Eventually, she became a psychotherapist and an artist, but I grew up in Cambridge, Mass. I was born in 1961 in the 60s and 70s. It was really, I would say, the epicenter (laughs) of liberal universalism um, at sort of the apex of this very assimilationist moment. So I grew up in a house that was completely secular but very, very Jewish culturally, and there was kind of a, a mystery there that, in a certain way, I've spent a lifetime decoding. Um, after college, um, David and I actually met almost exactly forty years ago when we were we were college students at Yale, and very, I would say, almost by accident. Um, I never ever expected to go to law school. I did not know a lawyer. <laughs> I hardly knew anyone. I really didn't know any professionals. All the grownups I knew were intellectuals or teachers or therapists, or. Um, but I did end up going to Harvard Law School. I was there from 1984 to 1987 which was the heyday of critical legal studies. It was the moment when critical race theory and critical feminist jurisprudence were being born. It was a moment when liberalism was being subject to a very sustained critique, certainly from the left, Um, but also, as we write about in our book, from, from the right and from more conservative, religious, traditionalist quarters. So I think all my life I've been trying to understand the paradoxes of liberalism and the paradoxes of secularism, and in a very deep way, that's what this book is about.
2: Wow! Thank you for that. That really helps us get some get some sense of of who you are and how you uh, come to to this work, David. What do you
3: What do you say? Oh man, I can I replicate that. But I, <laughs> I'm a, a Jewish guy from Scranton, Pennsylvania, um, which was um, a place um, with a very tight knit Jewish community that fit into. The ethnic fabric of um, a post-industrial middle Atlantic city. Um, it seemed as if everybody in Scranton belonged to a group, so collective identity was very strong: Irish, Italian, Welsh, Ukrainian, Polish, Jewish, um, and you were, you know, immediately branded and identified as part of uh, a group. Um, and you know, I think that that um, is relevant to my longstanding interest really in groupness. Um, I often say of Scranton it's sort of the last remaining medieval kahila, medieval autonomous communal form, um, because it seems so tight knit. Um, That isn't to say that um, it was sort of uh, filled with cultural vitality. Um, I wouldn't describe the Jewish community of Scranton (laughs) as that, Um, it sort of moved between the warm embrace of tradition of my grandparents and a kind of rote, soulless um, uh, performance of, of ritual that calls to mind Philip Ross Newark, um, but I, I managed to get out um, at an early age. As a matter of fact, at seventeen, um, but with an appreciation for that sense of groupness, that sort of that that sort of thick sense of groupness. Um, and I made my way to Yale. And uh, then, after Yale, I followed a somewhat peripatetic graduate career um, that first took me to Tel Aviv University, believing that I wanted to study nothing but the history of um, socialist and even Marxist Zionism. Um, and from there, I went to Harvard, where I spent a year studying nothing but the twelfth century. Uh, Jewish philosopher, the the sort of enormously significant Jewish philosopher, Maimonides. Um, And then finally, um, on my third attempt at it, um, I found my teacher um, at Columbia, Professor Yosef Chaim Yushalmi, sort of the towering uh, Jewish historian of his generation, um, and began my career, um, and indeed, indeed have spent a good deal of it as an intellectual historian um, and historian of ideas, um, principally um, involving European Jewish thinkers, uh, but also uh, European Jewish thinkers who had made their way to Palestine before the creation of the State of Israel. All of which is to say that uh, arriving uh, on the shores of the United States and exploring a community like Kiryas Joel, in New York, um, marks a very significant departure from my previous research in, Every conceivable way in subject matter, in overall outlook in methodology, um, and that's what made it so incredibly interesting
2: right that yeah I was uh, uh thinking about that as you were speaking that really for for nomi and for you david your your um, your your background or your professional uh, training and the the areas of focus that you've uh, researched previously are really quite different from um uh, from 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 what you're writing about this time, so uh, that's that's really interesting, um, and I think uh, readers uh, uh, benefit from from having scholars come from from very different perspectives or different subject matter to illuminate um, uh, the subject at hand. Um, so to to get into this, uh, we're talking about Curious Joel, this uh, small. Uh, Town or city, uh, a village. Um, where exactly is Kiris joa located, uh, yeah. Naomi? So
3: it's, it, here, I'll, I'll jump in and, and sure, sure. You're
2: welcome to to <laughs> share questions however you like. That's no problem. I'll just uh, uh, give go you know back and forth. But you could uh, you could uh, ring a friend anytime. No right. problem. Right.
3: Yeah. Do I have one uh, <laughs> line open? As many
2: as, you have as many uh, as many uh, ask a friends as you want. <laughs>
3: Okay, so Curious Joel, or as we might refer to it um, um, a bit, KJ, uh, is located 50 miles north of New York City in Orange County, um, one of the outlying counties of New York City. Um, uh, It was established uh, formally in 1977 as a village within the town of Monroe. It turns out that it's very easy, um, kind of shockingly easy, to create a village of your own in the state of New York, you need basically 500 uh, property owners and uh, who occupy no more than five square miles.
0: residents. Um,
3: and residents. And it, and and if you um, if you have sufficient discipline um, and can sort of deliver consensus, you can create a village of your own. And that's what a group of Satra Hasidic Jews did in 1977 um, in creating a village within the town of Monroe. Um, It's important to note that that village became in 2019 a town of its own. So it effectively seceded from the town of Monroe so as to avoid avoid ongoing uh, entanglements, uh, principally over uh, land and water, sort of the chief resources of significance um, in uh, suburban New York. Um, But what also is important to note is that um, it was a community that was first established as a neighborhood within the town of Monroe with, um, you know, 100 families in the summer of 1974. In the 1980 United States Census, there were already 2,000 residents of uh, of Curious Joel reflecting its astonishingly large uh, birth rate. In 2020, there were just shy of 33,000 residents of Curious Joel, again, reflecting Uh, the extraordinarily high birth rate of the community, which grew by 62% from 2010. Um, And the community's own estimates are that by 2035, there may be as many 75,000 people in in KJ. Um, There are other estimates that suggest it could be far higher than that. Uh, So this is a community that, um, while you described it as small relative to Cities in New York um, is likely to become much bigger um, and indeed become really the first all Hasidic city um, in maybe the world, but certainly uh, outside of Israel.
2: Right. Oh, thank you for that. So, for listeners who are not familiar with, Hasidism. Uh, Nomi, could you just really briefly uh, <laughs> describe and, <laughs> We, we, we could go back to David if if if, if that if that's better. Uh, so David, uh, uh, either way, really, uh, we, we don't judge here. Uh, this is a very safe space, uh, as I tell my students.
0: Uh, let me just interject, because we do have a division of labor reflecting our division of fields. So um, David certainly is the expert on the history of Hasidism. Of Hasidism. But I will say very proudly, I think we've both learned a lot about one another's respective fields, has been one of the joys. So I could answer your question if you wanted, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna. Um, call my friend and let the expert answer Ooh. that question. Sure,
2: sure. <laughs> and I, I, I'm sure you you have absolutely learned a lot, which is always a, a great thing <laughs> in yeah. a research project. Uh, if, yeah, you know
3: David- what, what we should probably say to the listeners who may not know <clears throat> but Naomi and I are married. We're not just co-authors, but we we, we, we married our, our our research interests. Right. and
0: and-, and, we, and we should say so. I am primarily a scholar of American law, and and really more broadly, of, of American political culture and of the place of religious groups and other subcommunities, sort of within American liberal society. David is, by training, a Jewish historian.
3: <laughs> yeah. And also just a word about Hasidism, uh, of which uh, the Satmar group that settled in the town of Monroe in 1974 is a representative of. Hasidism is a movement that extends back to the late 18th century. It began really as a form of both spiritual and social rebellion against um, the uh, dominant elite in Lithuania that was um, devoted to a kind of educational aristocracy. Um, Hasidism emerged as a movement that sought to enfranchise sort of the Jewish rank and file in the spiritual practice of Judaism. Um, particularly focused on those who had never attained the status of uh, a great giant in Torah studies, um, it wanted to, it aimed to make uh, Jewish religious experience accessible to all um, those who had to work night and day to make a living to feed their family and didn't have the opportunity to study in a shiv in a in a, in a Talmudic academy uh, all uh, all day. Um, so it began as this incredibly powerful movement of both spiritual and social protest in the late 18th century. And the message of the movement, uh, as delivered by the founding figure known as the Baal Shem Tov or the Besht, um, made its way to various centers throughout Eastern Europe. And in those centers, there was a kind of main interpreter of Hasidism um, in those different geographic locations. Those main interpreters became known as Rebbes or rabbis, leading sort of interpreters of the Hasidic way. And those rabbis who were, it should be noted, invested with the degree of power and authority that extended well beyond the traditional role of a rabbi in Jewish culture. Um, Those rabbis established courts as they came to be known, um, uh, reflecting the sense that they represented a version of royalty um, within this new spiritual movement. Those courts... Um, developed their own sort of variations, cultural variations, uh, variations of customs, um, and were very much associated with the geogra- geographic place where they were located. One of the latest of those um, uh, courts uh, to develop, already as late as the twentieth century, was that known as the Satmar uh, Hasidic group. Um, Satmar was the name of a Hungarian. Uh, city uh, that after 1920 and the dissolution of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the breaking up of Hungary was now part of Romania. And there it was known as Satumari. But the Jews who lived in that city very much identified with the earlier Hungarian roots of the place. Um, And it is there that sort of the charismatic founder of the Satmar Hasidic group, Um, really developed his most important uh, set of followers Um, when he was elected town rabbi of the entire Jewish community in 1928. um, But as was often the case with Hasidim, they elicited very significant opposition um, from traditional Jews from whom they broke off, as well as from more modern Jews who objected to uh, their very traditionalist ways. And so when this rabbi known as Joel Teitelbaum, uh, scion of one of the most important Hasidic families uh, in Hungary in the 19th century. When he made his way to the Romanian town of Satumari in 1928, or when he was elected rabbi of that town, uh, there was a lot of opposition to uh, to that election. Um, and he decided to wait until he there was more consensus. He waited six years and only came there in 1934. Um, and what's significant about that is um, the Satmar Hasidic group, which is probably the largest Hasidic group in the world today, begins very late. Other uh, Hasidic groups developed in the early 19th century. This is in uh, 1934. Um, the community only survives 10 years in Europe, from 1934 to 1944. Uh, and then after the Holocaust, makes its way to uh the United States. Rabbi Teitelbaum makes its way to the United States. There, he uh, reconstitutes uh, his uh, group of followers, initially just a small handful, um, but then over the course of a decade, he develops uh, a following some thousands.
0: Mm-hmm. And it, before we go on to tell the tale of the Sommers in America, if I can just add two um, characteristics, because you were sort of asking about Hasidism in general which is exemplified and in some ways distilled to its essence by the Samar Hasidim. I think there's two characteristics of um, the rabbis whom David described that, and, 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 and Hasidic culture more generally that bear emphasis because they turn out to have great significance in the American context as well. So one is, you know, David said <clears throat> in Europe, each center had the sort of the Rebbe who was the leading interpreter. Um, That was a very charismatic model of authority. I think that bears emphasis. And I think that's part of the reason that they come to be regarded as courts with the the sort of trappings of royalty, the same kind of charismatic conception of leadership and, and a sort of direct pipeline to God you know, through whom the divine spirit flows um, was very, very much um, regarded as a feature of the rabbis. And that's something that very much distinguished Hasidic Judaism from more traditional forms of rabbinic Judaism. And the other thing that bears emphasis, you know, David talked about sort of the in, the internal battles within Judaism, the way in which Hasidism was a pietist and populist revolt Against the more kind of intellectualist elitist form of rabbinic Judaism, but it was also a revolt against modernity more generally, right? So the anti-modernism, which is a characteristic that Hasidism shared with you know many also Christian pietistic communities, um, and that that anti-modernism went hand in hand with a kind of quietist and really separatist theology, right? The the notion that the modern world is inherently corrupt, the secular world is inherently corrupt, and in order to be religiously and spiritually pure and pious, uh, the community needs to insulate itself and separate itself from worldly affairs. Zaman,
3: I, I promise we'll let you get a word at <laughs> <class>. two, <laughs> two very quick comments to Nomi's wonderful gloss um, about ant- the anti-modernism of the community, um, but a, a kind of decidedly modern anti-modernism uh, insofar as um, the communities um, that define themselves as anti-modern used many of the organizational strategies and even sometimes means of communication of more avowedly modern movements. Um, So um, the self-presentation as anti-modern, as sort of the direct heirs of ancient uh, uh, prototypes um, was an example of what uh, a pair of famous scholars called an invention of tradition, right? It wasn't, there's no such thing as unmediated access to uh, to the ancient Israelites as sometimes was portrayed. Um, So it's important to sort of situate that anti-modern project in a decidedly modern era and even sensibility. The other comment I wanna make just very briefly um, is about what modernity as an ideology represented for particularly Satmar Hasidism. Um, It represented a source of unrelenting uh, contamination Um, pollution and threat. Um, The modern world was seen as unrelentingly hostile to the preservation of that ancient way, that sort of unbroken, unmediated ancient way. Um, And uh, it's especially important to note that the Teitelbaum family, from which the central dramatic personality in our story, Rabbi Joel Teitelbaum, comes, was distinguished by its commitment to engage in battle against the forces of uh, impurity, um, which points to an interesting tension. Um, Nomi mentioned that there was a quietism vis-a-vis sort of the sort of Jews' existence in in exile, in diaspora, but there was also this incredible commitment to fight for a world of purity, and that's what makes this particular community so very interesting, that kind of clash of quietistic, and combative uh, sensibilities um, in,
2: in, in Rabbi Joel Teitelbaum and his followers. Right. I'm checking off all the questions that you've answered without me asking. So this is going remarkably well. Uh, but but just so uh, no one gets lost in in, in, in all of the brilliance, um, I just want to highlight uh, a question that I had, which, David, I feel like you already are you know sort of um, answered, but maybe if you want to speak more uh, directly to it, the question of um, so the book is really centered on this village that became a town, curious Joel in in, in in Monroe County, New York, uh, that was founded in the late 1970s by this charismatic leader, Rabbi Joel Teitelbaum. Why was it founded? Why he he began when he came to America uh, right uh, shortly after the Holocaust. Uh, he began. Um, to establish a community in Williamsburg in Brooklyn, right right next to the Brooklyn Bridge. And the, the community was there for, for several decades and, and, and grew in, in, by leaps and bounds during that period. Why did he decide to, to, to move or to, to extend the community by establishing another site uh, where the community would be located?
3: Right. So Joel Teitelbaum arrives in the United States on the second day of Rosh Hashanah in 1946, Um, Almost immediately, he settles in Williamsburg, um, and there he begins to sort of bring together the tattered fragments of the um, post-Holocaust Hungarian Jewish survivor community um, and recognizes that Williamsburg, which had a substantial Orthodox population prior to that time, was a good setting for him to begin to rebuild a community. Um, But he also understood that cities were sources of seduction and allure. Uh, to uh, to Jews committed to a traditional path, um, and he um, communicated to his uh, chief aides that he thought it would be necessary uh, for the survival of this sort of reconstituting community to find, in addition to Williamsburg, a place at a remove from the seductions and allures of the city, um, a, a kind of safe haven, a spiritual enclave, at a remove from the city but yet close enough to make one's way to it for uh, employment purposes. Um, It's important to note, many people have the impression that Hasidic Jews, men in particular, don't work. Uh, They study all day. Uh, The the Sabra community and Rabbi Tazelbaum have uh, had a different expectation, men should work. So it was really important to find a place that was far enough away to assure some degree of isolation, but close enough to assure the capacity to commute on an daily basis. Um, that effort to find a community at a remove, which was uh, dis- defined in um, sort of the inner circle of Rabbi Tatelbaum as the quest to find a shtetl, referring to the Yiddish, Yiddish term for a small town or village that sort of in the mythic imagination was exclusively Jewish, happens not to be historically true, as we'll talk about, I hope. Th-
2: these um, statues were in Eastern Europe you're referring to?
3: Shtetls were in Eastern Europe, um, and uh, that was sort of the ideal that that Rabbi Teitelbaum had and communicated to his associates, and they began the quest to find such a place. Um, the first significant place that they looked was actually on Staten Island, which at that point did not have a bridge connecting it to uh, the other boroughs, um, and that is, was in 1953 and, and didn't work out. Um, then a decade later, there was a very serious attempt to create to buy land and and create a shtetl in Mont Olive, New Jersey. But that effort kind of crashed and burned when uh, town officials and residents recognized that the people who were planning to come to this to their idyllic suburban community uh, was a group of sort of foreign-looking and foreign-speaking uh, Hasidic Jews, um, and that became a leitmotif, that when um, the Satmar advisors of Rabbi Telerman would make their way out to uh, suburban New York or New Jersey. Uh, they were not greeted with with an open embrace, with a warm embrace, by uh, by suburban officials uh, or residents um, uh, who did not want to upset uh, sort of the sort of the idyllic homogeneity, often white homogeneity, that uh, they had established. Um, the Satmar community got wise um, after decades of uh, failure um, and uh, they entrusted the task of purchasing land to the brother-in-law of perhaps the chief um, aide to Rabbi Joel Teitelbaum. The chief aide was a man named Leibish Lefkowitz who became the first mayor of Kiryas Joel, um, a Satmar Hasidic Jew. His brother-in-law was uh, a non-observant, clean-shaven, a Hungarian Jew by the name of Oscar Fischer. And it is he who showed up in Orange County, New York in the town of Monroe uh, to purchase the first uh, several hundred acres of land um, in 1972. Um, and then over the next two years, um, really under uh, under um, uh, a st- in a state of concealment, uh, so as not to let on to the local residents that a bunch of Hasidic Jews were coming to town Um, the first neighborhood uh, was built uh, that consisted of uh, 25 single-family homes and 80 garden apartments. Um, And then only in the spring of 1974 uh, was the cat let out of the bag as advertisements began to appear in uh, the Yiddish press um, uh, uh, calling for people to, Satmar Chassidim in particular, to move to uh, this new suburban ideal, um, which was caste described as a shtetl, um, as, uh, and and that conjured up this this idea of a kind of a site of purity uh, where only like-minded Jews uh, would live in a state of complete conformity to their traditional values. And it's just important to add that this is not what the historical Mm -hmm. shtetl in Eastern Europe was at all.
0: And if I can just add to that, you know, there were two things happening in the sort of broader American culture at this very point in time um, that uh, are just so congruent. So one, David just referred to what we might think of as sort of the imaginary shtetl, the, 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 the way in which uh, a memory, in many ways, a distorted memory of the shtetls of the past was was figuring um, in the imagination not only of the sommers but in broader American culture. This is, I, I believe, it was 1971. Is the year that Fiddler on the Roof, um, which had you know been a smash hit on Broadway in the 60s, it's made into a film. The film is released that year. It's wildly popular, and not only is it wildly popular. But it becomes an emblem um, of the idea of a traditional, homogeneous, wholesome society um, in, in, in the American political imagination. So, um, not all of your listeners may know of Lewis Powell. Lewis Powell Um, is appointed to the Supreme Court, I think the following year in 1972, he becomes a Supreme Court justice. But in the year before he's elevated to the Supreme Court in 1971, he does two things. One is he issued what was at the time a a sort of secret address to the United States Chamber of Commerce, which was sort of... um, the preeminent sort of organization representing business interests. And he gives an address to the chamber of commerce that is now widely regarded as having laid out the blueprint for the conservative movement, for political conservatism in America going forward. It was largely a sort of pro-business, anti-regulatory agenda. That same year... He's he's then appointed to become a Supreme Court justice. And the following summer, this is precisely at the point in time when the Sotmer's efforts to find land, either in New Jersey or as it ultimately turns out, the suburbs of New York, is really picking up steam. Uh, Then Justice Powell is is invited to give uh, an address to Uh, This is part of uh, what was known as the prayer breakfast movement. We didn't quite yet have national prayer breakfasts. And this is the Barr Foundation, the Association of American Lawyers. He's invited to give an address, a prayer breakfast address. And what does he talk about? Fiddler on the roof. The shtetl. And he portrays and, and, and he uses this, he's, now he's giving expression to this other aspect of the American conservative movement. He's most well known for sort of economic conservatism, but this goes hand in hand with social and religious conservatism. And he invokes this image Again, this idea that the shtetl was this insular, completely religiously homogeneous community, you know, where, where patriarchs like Tevya presided over by the family. And so this imaginary vision of the shtetl, which was completely different from the real shtetl, real shtetls were not religiously homogeneous, real shtetls in Europe were towns in which Jews lived amongst Gentiles and in which even within the Jewish community, there was tremendous religious and political diversity among Jews. So the same kind of falsification, the imaginary, the mythological version of the shtetl, was becoming very important as an emblem for uh, a a sort of... uh, I would say, white ethnic traditionalism, religious and social conservatism that felt itself to be sort of threatened um, on the one hand by black civil rights and on the other hand uh, by liberal and progressive and secularizing movements of various kinds. The other thing that was occurring at this very point in time is this is the moment of the great move to the suburbs in the United States. Suburban, right? The Sotmers are participating in the flight from the city to the suburbs, which was largely, although not exclusively, a story of white flight from racially mixed urban uh, settings to the suburbs. So the, the the Sotmers, this is not a coincidence that uh, a, a project, the Sotmer Project to found what they call a shtetl is happening and succeeding at a moment in time when the shtetl is coming to occupy a place in the American political imagination, in particular, the American conservative political imagination. But there's also, you know, there's left wing versions of this kind of communitarian mythologizing of communities as well. Um, And also that this is happening at the same time that the great move to the, that, that suburbanization is occurring.
1: I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready to eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie smart, protein plus, and keto. These are two minute meals, Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
2: Right now, one um, one theme uh, that uh, that uh, continues throughout a lot of your book has to do with legal struggles related to the Curious Joel Free Union School District. Now, what exactly is the Free the Curious Joel Free Union District, Naomi?
0: Right, so it doesn't have anything to do with labor unions. Um, uh, that language of a free district—it's really—it's just a legal term that re- refers to independent school districts. And especially for your non-American listeners, um, it's important to point out that in the United States, um, public schools are—it's not—they're—they're they're not national they're not even state run. I mean, there is some, there is to be sure every state has a state department of education that regulates all school districts, but the United States of America has a proud tradition of local school districts, localism. And that, that, uh, American political tradition of localism is also a very important part of this story. So in America, uh, School districts are organized not on the state level, but on a sub state level. However, um, earlier, much earlier in the 20th century, whereas it used to be that maybe every little municipality, every little town, every little village might have had its own school district, but there was a movement to regionalize, to yoke together, especially, right? It, you know, a, a big city like New York City, it has its own school district. But outside of the cities, uh, largely for reasons of economic efficiency, right? Each town and school district uh, and village is is too small to really sustain a school district by itself. So the mode of organization was regional, and and there were two, one but maybe two objectives behind that move to regionalize school districts. As I said before, it was largely for reasons of efficiencies of scale, but it was also the case in the early part of the 20th century, before the Satmar story begins, that at that point in time, the, one of the big battles was Protestant versus Catholic. The Protestants were the establishment. Protestant culture dominated public schools, even though nominally public schools were were deemed to be secular. Um, And Catholics really, really resisted what they perceived as a kind of Protestant cultural hegemony and and really indoctrination of their children in the public schools. Those who could afford it, and this is a very important backdrop to the Sommer story, Catholics who could afford to do so resisted the Protestant hegemony in public schools by sending their kids to Catholic parochial schools. Again, unlike most countries in the world, in the United States of America, religious schools have to be private, right? So, which is to say only parents who can afford the tuition can send their children to private schools. Or, or, or parents who live in religious communities that subsidize the ability of parents. To, but most Catholics <laughs> could not afford it. The vast majority, notwithstanding how robust the Catholic parochial school system was, most Catholics sent their children to public school. And so there were big battles. And there were instances in which Catholic communities did what I'm about to describe the Sotmers did. They settled outside the city in rural or suburban areas where they would be so thickly clustered that they would be the the majority of the community. And therefore the local public school district would be responsive to their interest. They would be the people on the school board. They could control the content. Well, um, one very effective way of resisting what was perceived as the Catholic quote unquote takeover or capture of public school districts was to regionalize. So that was the backdrop. Um, so when the Somers settled in Curious Joel, of course, they don't want to send their children to public schools. They send their children to religious schools. The boys go to yeshivas, the girls go to girls, and, and those are private schools except for children with special needs. By law, starting in 1975, when Congress this is one of the first victories of the American Disability Rights Movement, Congress passes a law mandating that every child with special needs, every child with disabilities, be provided... With, an, with educational services specifically tailored to meet their needs. And it becomes the obligation of every local or regional public school district to provide those services to every single child within their jurisdiction, regardless of whether the child goes to public school or to a private school or is homeschooled. But that creates a terrible dilemma, because in the United States of America, we have a clause in the First Amendment of the Constitution that's called the Establishment Clause. It's a clause that prohibits this, the state establishment of religion. Well, what does it mean for the state to have an established religion? It certainly means that the state, there there's no official religion, there's no official church, but it was also understood to prohibit Public support for religion and, in particular, for religious education. So, under those interpretations of the Constitution, according to which it is unconstitutional for state funded educational services to be provided to religious schools, that seemed to be a problem if children like the Sotmers, who are attending the community's religious schools or Catholic children attending parochial schools, how can the school district fulfill its obligation to provide special educational services without violating the Establishment Clause? That was a very difficult issue, which is what led to the creation in the village of Curious Joel of a public school district, the aforementioned Union Free Public School District, which just means their own independent school district serving the village and only the village.
3: Yeah, I just have to sort of take a step back and, and explain how we got from the shtetl to, a, vill- to, to a, uh, a school district. Um, it's basically conflict that has defined some of the key institutions uh, that we're talking about. First, the village of Joel, which means actually the village or town of Joel named after the charismatic uh, Satla Rebbe, came about as a result of very stark differences over the interpretation of the town of Monroe's zoning regulations um, over things like what constitutes a single-family home um, and whether it is legitimate to have in an apartment uh, a preschool, uh, a ritual bath, um, a matzah bakery for Passover. these um, questions came up repeatedly after the first Satma res- residents moved into this neighborhood in the town of Monroe in 1974. And over the course of the next two years, became extremely intense. Um, and um, there, were, um, uh, there was an attempt to, in fact, bring a lawsuit on the part of the Satma residents against uh, the residents and officials of the town of Monroe in federal district court on the grounds of religious discrimination in October, 1976. And as a way of averting that, uh, th- that case three days before it was due to begin on October 26th, 1976, it was agreed to allow the Sotmer neighborhood essentially to create its own, well, to regulate its own zoning by virtue of carving out a village within the town of Monroe. That's why the shtetl, um, this sort of mythic uh, image of a holistic, homogeneous community became a village, a legally recognized municipality in the state of New York. So that's kind of conflict. Number one conflict. Number two was over what was the best way to, uh, provide education to special needs kids in the community. Um, state educators said, send them to public school. That's the way to do it. Or send them to some off-site location where other kids can be trained by um, public school officials um, outside of Curious Joel. And for a variety of reasons, most significantly because this rebe- represented really a stark challenge to um, sort of the cultural integrity um, and the cultural and religious integrity of of uh, KJ kids, of kids from uh, the Satmar community, it was decided to create an independent public school district within the bounds of Curious Joel, which listeners should understand is very different than what people often think of, which is the example of East Ramapo and its uh, school district where a group of uh, Orthodox parents who do not send their kids to public schools essentially took over the school board of that, uh, of that town and then had resources diverted to uh, private schools um, at a much higher rate. That's a different model. This is creating um, a self-standing school district within a self-standing Hasidic municipality.
0: Yeah, and it's public school was only intended and in and, and point of fact only does enroll children with special needs.
2: Right. And, and to your point, David, about how this is uh, a public school really for, only, you know, for children, uh, you know, Satmar, uh, you know, Hasidic children in this area, how Hasidic or Jewish was this public school in, in, in terms of its wow. uh, functioning and, and so on?
3: Right. So that's, uh, first of all, it's a very impressive uh, facility, um, building and, and, and program. Um, because the um, uh, student population of the school is entirely comprised of special needs kids, there's no standard curriculum. Um, Every student has uh, his or her own uh, special program. Um, uh, There are certain things that um, one might expect to see in a school in a Satmar community, like um, a mezuzah on the wall um, or... Religious sayings or religious books
0: or, or gender segregation
3: uh, or gender segregation. And none of that is the case because it can't according to, uh, the laws of the state of New York. And this is one of the reasons, by the way, why there was fierce opposition within the community to the creation of a public school, because it could not perpetuate, uh, the very practices that education, which is taking very seriously in the community, uh, was supposed to do. Um, people said you know in the early years of uh of the school district well um you know they're going to be celebrating martin luther king day not uh, not rosh hashanah um, or president's day abraham lincoln day not rosh hashanah or yom K- yom kippur um and so there was opposition within the community which uh the opponents regarded as a kind of trojan horse to bring in foreign values uh the school um uh, has no uh, overt signs of uh, of Jewish uh, religiosity other than uh, the appearance of the kids and the teachers who uh, very much look the part of traditionally observant Jews. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Jewish holidays are indeed, uh, and could, it couldn't be otherwise, are indeed recognized and students do not, and the school is closed on Jewish holidays. Um, which is permissible according to uh, the laws of the state of New York. As long as a certain minimum number of days is met, it doesn't really matter when the school district meets. Um, uh, It is also important to note that Yiddish is used in the school district, uh, which is also permissible. As we know, um, school districts sometimes not only use languages other than English, but in fact uh, uh, value um, instruction in other languages. So uh, the languages of instruction are English and Yiddish. Um, which means that uh, many of the teachers and uh, therapists uh, and other staff come from traditionally observant communities, though not necessarily the Satmar community, where it is important to emphasize education is taken very, very seriously. Education is the primary vehicle for uh, the perpetuation of the community's values, but not um, education along the lines of what we might call the American Jewish mainstream, where college attendance and indeed advanced degrees are considered the ideal. Not so in Keir, Stroll, New York, not so in um, many Hasidic or Haredi traditionally observant communities where college attendance is seen as a danger. Um, so education is taken very seriously, but not secular education outside uh, of the confines of the community. You can see in that way why creating a public school that operates according to somewhat different principles might be perceived by some within the community as threatening. Uh, The fact is uh, the school functions at a very high level um, with a tremendous amount of sophistication in terms of uh, special needs education, um, and it has become largely accepted by most but not all within the community.
2: Right. I think... um uh, to your point, David, it's worth pointing out that there's kind of an ironic, a profound irony in the whole situation with the public school for kids with special needs. Because in essence, the Satmar community and Kiris Joel is saying that for all of our non-special needs st- uh, children and students, we don't want the state to interfere at all and tell us anything about what they should learn, how they should learn, when they should learn it, or so and so on. And at the same time, for the population of students with special needs, we are uh, uh, essentially eager to accept a tremendous amount, uh, certainly of financial and other kind of institutional support from the government. Yeah, so to, I mean, to, well,
3: there was a, a recognition. I mean, you could say what one might say was purely because the cost of educating special needs kids uh, are so much higher than that of, uh, of kids, kids without special needs. Um, and it was purely to derive economic benefit or, but it, it really is more than that. It was also recognition that the community did not have the professional resources to uh, to teach and, and educate special, need, special needs kids. At a moment, and maybe Nomi can say a bit more about this, when consciousness about disabilities and disability rights mm-hmm. uh, was growing at a rapid rate. And here, I just want to say we have the contiguity of two things. You can make your own, conclu- you can draw your own conclusion. You have an emerging disability rights movement and you have some Hasidic parents who are saying it's no longer okay to keep our kids like literally in closets. We're taking them out of the closet. Now, we call that um, here and elsewhere a form of unwitting assimilation of norms from the surrounding culture, but maybe Noma can say a bit more about yeah. it.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, it really is a fascinating example of how uh, very significant cultural change that's occurring in broader American culture, you see essentially the same change in attitudes here, change in attitudes towards disabilities and towards people with disabilities is occurring inside the Satmar community really at the exact same time. So first of all, you know, it's important to correct a common misperception. Um, there are many people who criticize um, not only the Satmers, but um, Hasidic and Haredi Jewish communities generally for having, or at least having had until far too late, very backwards attitudes towards people with disabilities. And this is true. Um, Up until the 70s, uh, uh, to have a child born with a disability was viewed as, you know, quite literally a stigma, uh, a a sign of divine uh, retribution for, you know, some sin on the part of the family. Um, And it was a source of, of shame and stigma. Children were hidden away. There was little to nothing by way of support for such children um but the but the fact of the matter is the you know similarly quote unquote backwards attitudes were were the norm in all of american society at precisely the same moment that the disability rights movement in america arises right this is one of these movements that you know one of these Uh, movements that arises in the wake of the civil rights movement, the struggle for racial justice, very inspired by the struggle for civil rights for for Black people. Other other oppressed groups say, yes, and we want civil rights too. And and we know the story of that, the the incredible positive changes that were made. Um, You see the same change in attitudes, uh, taking place within the supposedly completely insular Sotmer community in the large, and that begins actually in Brooklyn in Williamsburg and there's one figure in particular, a woman by the name of Malka Silverstein, uh, a, a very impressive character she was also a director of one of the the, the, the private religious schools in the community. she gave birth to a child. Um, with disabilities in the 70s, and as she relates, she said, from the moment my daughter was born, I knew it was my mission. I was going to fight for change in, in attitudes, and what she saw herself as fighting for, it's the parallelisms with the, the discourse and the values of the broader American society are just so striking. She, she saw herself as fighting not only for more support for, for children and people with disabilities and the families but for more integration within Somer society, she wanted her child and every child with disabilities to be integrated into the life of the community, into the schools of the community, into the rel- from which they had formerly been excluded. Now, from one point of view, you could say, "Oh, well, they're 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 still seeking uh, to." You know, they're, they're resisting mainstreaming because they don't want to integrate their children with special needs into uh, into the public schools, into the regional public schools. They don't want to send them out of society and have them mainstreamed. But she saw herself as fighting for mainstreaming inside the community. And she says, I mean, and this is taking place exactly at the same time that the first White House conference on on on, on uh, children with handicaps and their needs is taking place. She says she had no awareness, and that the other activists who arose within the community. But it's happening at exactly the same time, appealing to the same values of we need to overcome stigmatization and segregation. Um, so it's a it's a fascinating example. When then once those laws are passed by Congress, um, not only has has a, a new consciousness arisen inside Satmar society, you might say a quite progressive consciousness, they, in point of fact, they have no choice anymore. They both want the publicly funded services, educational services, that it is the task of public school districts to provide. But even if they had not wanted them, they wouldn't have a choice in the matter. Under the new laws that were passed, um, it is it is the obligation of the state to provide and implement and fund services for every child with special needs, whether their parents and community want them or not.
2: Right. Right. Um, speaking of the law, I think listeners might be surprised to to learn that there was actually a United States Supreme Court case all about the Satmer uh, uh, community and the school district in curious, Joe, could you tell us briefly, because uh, there's so much more to talk about, but we're going to run out of time. Could you tell us briefly what that court case was and what its decision ultimately was?
0: Yes. Um, so this is this is what really thrust the community into the spotlight. Um, everything we're talking about took place in the early 1990s. It's, it's in 1990 that the New York State Legislature passes a special law allowing the village to Um, have its own separate school district, separate from the regional district of which it was formerly a part for the reasons we have explained. Um, And that was one way of responding to this dilemma we talked about, um, which was how could children who either attend parochial schools or are part of uh, a religious community that wants to separate itself from the larger culture so that it can ensure the transmission of its values and to its children, um, how, how can that be reconciled with the delivery of publicly funded state educational services? So in, in 1997, the Supreme Court said it is consistent with the constitution for school districts to provide these services to children inside parochial schools. But in 1985, the Supreme Court said exactly the opposite. So this is a situation in which the Supreme Court reversed itself. Why? Because you have two conflicting values. As I said before, we have the Establishment Clause, which prohibits providing public funding to religious schools. But on the other hand, we have another clause of the first amendment that guarantees the right to the free exercise of religion and that and other clauses of the constitution have been interpreted as, uh, giving parents the right not to send their children to public schools, which in the United States have to be secular and to send their children to religious schools to receive a religious education. So these are just two completely conflicting values and the court has flip flopped on them. In 1990, it was still the law of the land that you could not, that these services could not be provided to children inside religious schools. And so the solution devised was to let the village have its own school district. But that the law allowing the school to have its own school district was challenged on the grounds that it violates this, the establishment clause. And that case went all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. And in 1994, the Supreme Court handed down a decision that appeared to be a defeat for the Sommers, but turned out not to be. It appeared to be a defeat because the Supreme Court said, yes, this law allowing, creating the separate school district in the village is unconstitutional. It does violate the Establishment Clause. That seemed to spell the end of the school district. But in fact, it turned out nothing could be further from the case. Because when you looked at the reasoning of the Supreme Court's decision, it went out of its way to say, there's nothing wrong with a religiously homogeneous community having its own separate school district. That does not violate, that's not what violates the Establishment Clause. What the Supreme Court said was the constitutional problem was that the state had singled out one and only one religiously homogeneous community and allowed it to have its own separate school district. And that kind of singling out of one religious community the Supreme Court said that's that violates the Establishment Clause. The clear implication was if the state would go back to the drawing board and pass a law allowing any religiously homogeneous community that met certain ostensibly neutral characteristics to create its own separate school district, that would be fine. And that was the logic that prevailed. And at the end of the day, the the, 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 the Sotmer school district was not required to shut down.
2: Wow. So as of right now the school and the the, the Sotmer school district continues along its merry way. That's and- right.
0: It it opened its doors in nineteen ninety and those doors have never shut except for snow days. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and, and national holidays.
2: Right, right. Well, there's so much more to talk about, but I think we're going to have one last question. I'll give this to David. Um, truly, your book covers a lot of topics. Um, when you when you uh, look at all of that, um, what does the story of Curious Joel teach us about America?
3: Yeah, well, it tells us, I think... Um, a couple of interesting and important things. First of all, it tells us that, um, it reminds us that strong forms of religious community are not foreign to the United States of America, but indeed have been a central part of this country's history, really from the inception of the American Republic, extending back to the first European settlers who made their way to the United States. It also reminds us um, that, Um, You know, groups such as KJ, um, traditional religious uh, sub-communities that in some sense define themselves as illiberal, they don't see themselves as uh, valuing the autonomy of the individual um, as a central um, uh, selling point or ideal of their community, make use of decidedly liberal sensibilities and levers of power uh, in order to sustain and preserve their illiberal way of life. Um, Things, first of all, in terms of just economic liberalism, the purchase of private property is the first step towards the creation of this kind of enclave that became not just a shtetl, but a village. Uh, The franchise, um, the right to participate in the political order as uh, individuals who then are capable of aggregating power using their group discipline to aggregate power and play the game of American interest group politics very well. Um, it sort of exposes an interesting feature of the American liberal system, which is its profound tolerance for a measure of illiberalism, what we call illiberal liberalism. Um, I think there are a couple of other things in this I'll just conclude. It reveals um how it is possible to sustain a community with a very thick culture? Um, it reveals, um, you know, what, what 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 you know might be an interesting uh, um, lesson to American Jews about about uh, about preservation in the midst of constant anxiety. But I would conclude by saying it also reveals, um, especially apparent after January six two thousand one to uh, two thousand twenty one. Um, that this country will have very a very difficult time uh, surviving uh, peaceably uh, without uh, a shared appreciation for core values of democracy uh, and civic engagement. Um, and in that regard, um, I think there's a lot America uh, can learn from this example of Kirch Joel, but there's also a lot that Kirch uh, Joel, I think, has to learn from Um, democratic and civic values that have been core to America at its best.
0: Which is to say that America has gone very, very far in tolerating religious separatism and illiberal religious separatism. But after January 6th, and in the wake of the pandemic, it's a serious question what the consequences of tolerating separatism to that degree will be for the survival of Of liberal democracy as such.
2: Right. Well, that's a very somber note to end on, uh, but we we do have to end there. Thank you for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today.
0: Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure, Salad.
2: That concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.